Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 22nd, 2018, and this is episode uh, 2,151 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today because you guys help write the show. This is a listener Q&A show where you guys send me emails with stories and things like that or questions or concerns or comments, and I respond to them. Uh, and I've got some other extra topics blended in with today's. So I think you'll enjoy today's show. Lots of variety. Uh, I found the Harris response, the Stephen Harris response. I'm prepping for an EMP. I'm going to play it again. It hadn't been played for a couple of years. And uh, follow up to last week's question about EMP and why I'm not worried about it at all. Uh, and I got a little bit more information on the concept of a CME or coronal mass ejection as well when we get to that. Um, and then I have a question for you. Are you, or maybe it's more comfortable if I say, is are you or someone you know acting like an, an, an easily led moron? Like a big, dumb jackass with a ring in your nose being led around by a carrot. I'm, I'm just saying. Um, and how you could break that cycle and actually find out if you're actually behaving like a moron, because you're probably not, but you might be acting like one. I think this audience is... Uh, Largely clear of this, but I think it'll be beneficial anyway. I'll read a little article I wrote to you, uh, for you today on that. Uh, I have a question on early season fishing and poison pigs. Does that make sense? It will in a minute. Uh, of kegerators and small kegs. And the narcissism of people shows up in a stupid comment to a recent guest. And no, not on my blog. Uh, an email that went out to this guest that just shows... The narcissism of people, especially in the conspiracy theory world. Um, how about getting paint off cast iron? I'll give you my thoughts on that. Um, I have a question on how I quote-unquote case a public place in case something goes wrong. It really isn't hard, and I'll talk about that. And I have a question on dealing with a dog that I can best describe as having a Napoleon complex. I'll do my best. I am not the dog whisperer. And generally speaking, my way of solving these problems is not to let them occur in the first place. But I'll do what I can anyway to retroactively try to get this pup to act like a dog instead of an idiot, which is the problem. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. You hear me say it all the time. You'll never hear me stop saying it because it will always be true, and it's a point that needs to be made over and over again. If your gun does not have any ammunition, you have an overpriced club. It cannot do what a gun is meant to do, whether it is to defend your life and your liberty or if it is to put food on the table. One way or another, without ammo, the gun is just a big, heavy object that you can beat something with and maybe not very effectively. So you need lots of ammo, and you need to be able to keep it in stock at all times. So you need to get on over to wearbulkammo.com, where you'll find all the common calibers and more at great pricing with fast shipping. How fast? So fast. You'll be like, wow, how did that get to my door already? I'm telling you, bulkammo.com will blow you away with price and service. Check them out today. You know where to find them. 
BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine from the people that brought you over 20 years of Backwoods Home. We've jumped forward with them into the more modern world with a primarily online publication with a quarterly print publication that can come along with it if that's what you want. You'll find it at self-reliance.com. It is an incredible, incredible publication. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I, I think they have really kind of gone to another level. We've gotten to a point where, you know, there's so much information on homesteading and self-sufficiency and liberty available today that it's hard to justify a lot of magazines. It really is. And you need someone that's being innovative and talking about the things that not everybody else has already talked about over and over and over again. Uh, taking things to the next level, learning new things. That's what these types of publications are supposed to be all about. And Self-Reliance Magazine will give you all of that and more. Remember, uh, Bulk Ammo, Self-Reliance, and most of our sponsors do discounts for you guys in the MSB. In this case, both sponsors do. Make sure you check the benefits section of the MSB before you sign up for Self-Reliance Magazine or put your order in with BulkAmmo.com. Next, let's take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 93 A.D., And we have Pliny the Younger becomes Praetor. Pliny the Younger, best known for surviving and documenting the Vesuvius eruption of 79 AD, he corresponded with many noble figures in Roman politics, such as made multiple reigning emperors, as well as notable historian Tactius. 247 of these letters have survived into modern day and have been a very useful source for modern historians. Pliny's rise through politics is considered to be a summary of the main Roman offices and his best-documented example during this era. Given he managed to survive the reigns of many different emperors, it speaks volumes of his ability to manipulate the political system and be favorable to different types of emperors. This is further proven by the fact that he continued rising through the ranks throughout all these uh, different emperors. His political career started around 80 AD, and this year he reaches the rank of praetor. Uh, after being Tribune of the Plebs, a.k.a. the People, in 91. My take by Southpaw Ben. Pliny is a great example of how the end of the world as we know it affects everybody differently, with some having their lives ruined or lost, such as those purged by different emperors taking power. Others will be largely unaffected, like many of the middle-class citizens, as uh, as a few governmental changes over the years affected them directly but who weren't powerful enough to attract the wrath of the ruler of the day. Finally, there are some who managed to thrive in the times and turmoil, such as Pliny the Younger, who had great political career despite the turmoil. Jack's teaches can, teachings can keep us... Uh, Jack's teachings... Sorry, I'm about myself. It's hard to do. Jack's teachings can help us be able to design resilience into our lives so that we have the best chance of falling into the latter two categories That is who survived largely unmolested and those who thrived. It's kind of what we talked about with uh, our guests from the Cold War cast last week, right? That a lot of times the people that just kind of stay out of the way, even if they're actively involved, in the city, they don't really get in anybody's way, and they might advance, but they don't appear to have so much ambition that they seem to be competition to you. They, they, they in, in, in these types of systems, those are the people that advance or that thrive. And most of us have no political ambition. We can still learn from this. We can still learn from this. Because it's about looking around you on a daily basis and figuring out that which you can influence and not wasting your time where you cannot. I'll leave that thought for a bit later in today's show. Real quick before we get into today's topics, let's go ahead and remind you about that MSB that we mentioned during the uh, sponsor segment. 
you guys can get so many discounts that it doesn't make sense not to be an MSB member. I, I mean, seriously, I want you to, to sometime just go take a look at the members page if you haven't signed up already. Look at all the companies there and say, can I see myself doing business with six or seven of these companies per year? If the answer is yes, I can tell you right now, you're going to end up with more money back in your pocket than you put out and you support the show. I've brought you guys like five new vendors this year. I've got more coming, and uh, we just keep making it better and better. So consider joining the MSB today. All right, with that, um, last Friday um, I had a question from somebody that said, hey, you, you said that there's just not going to be an EMP. Don't worry about it. Um, why do you feel that way? I read a forward by Newt Gingrich, and the world's going to end, and we're going to get nuked, and you know this is a real thing. And... Uh, I'll send somebody follow up on the blog and said, like, regardless of the threat from nuclear weapons, what about a coronal mass ejection? Um, and, you know, the event of 1859, and it said telegraph wires on fire and stuff like that. You know, here's the thing about that CMA in 1859. Um, We had basically ungrounded, giant, long strings of single-strand telegraph wire, or stranded, but just single strands of telegraph wire going for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles uh, with really no type of significant protection whatsoever. We live in a different world today. And again, it's back to what, what can you do to protect yourself? Can you actually take action? Instead of beating that up, I'm going to bring back this response from Steve Harris that was probably, oh, I guess a couple years ago, and let Steve explain it from the standpoint of a, a, um, an EMP attack. And it pretty much wraps up the concept of what you're going to do about it if it's a CME as well. Here you go. Blast in the past, Steve Harris on EMPs. If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny, consume you at will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Steve from North Carolina. This is Steve Harris on the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Here's the short of it. You're not going to EMP-proof your generator. There is going to be no EMP. That's a short answer, not a longer answer. When people start thinking about EMP, it's a sickness. It's a disease. It robs you from the inside out, and you always put everything to the test. Is it EMP-proof? And since nothing is, you'll end up with nothing, and you'll have nothing when the real disaster that Jack and I keep on preaching about hits. So when you have the blizzard, you want to have stuff for the blizzard, for the hurricane, for the tornado, for the flood, for the power failure, etc. You want to have stuff for that is real, that is stuff you know about and stuff that is really going to happen rather than stuff that is not going to happen. That is why I use that quote from Yoda that I just played. Once you start down the path of EMP, forever will it consume you. Now, some science. All explosions in Earth's atmosphere produce an EMP. It's just because when they detonate, they make a plasma, which is a high-temperature gas, Actually, it's fourth state of matter, but think of it as a high-temperature gas. And it does this inside the Earth's magnetic field. Even a firecracker in a trash can makes an EMP pulse. You can put, get a trash can, wrap wire around it, like 100 feet of wire, put a voltmeter on it, light a firecracker, throw it into the trash can. When it goes pop, 
you will get a spike on your on your meter and you produce a little EMP pulse. Okay, a little itty bitty one. It's not going to do nothing. Okay, it's got less power than a mouse fart. Now, in the world of nuclear weapons, there are fission weapons and there are fusion weapons. The first atomic weapons that we made were fission weapons. This was the gun-type weapon, and this was the compression, the weapon that compressed plutonium to make a critical mass that formed an explosion. Now, these produce an EMP as well. However, the EMP pulse produced at Hiroshima and Nagasaki went out a certain distance. So the nuclear bomb detonated, you got prompt radiation, you got prompt light, you got a prompt EMP pulse. The thing is that EMP pulse went out and it only has an effective distance, and that effective distance is less than the blast wave. So great, you get an EMP pulse that might harm your, potentially harm your electronics, and then the blast wave comes away and blows you and the house and everything away at two, three, four hundred miles an hour. So, what does it take to make the real EMP pulse that you are theoretically scared of, which is not going to happen? It takes a fusion weapon. These are weapons classed in the megatons. Fission, fission weapons are kilotons, thousands of tons of TNT. Fusion weapons are megatons, also called hydrogen bombs or thermonuclear bombs. They are in the megatons, millions of tons of TNT. Now, this makes an EMP as well. However, when you detonate one on the ground or slightly above the ground, it makes an EMP pulse. But again, the EMP pulse effective distance is less than the blast wave. So great, you get an EMP pulse, your computer goes blink, you see the bright light, and then the blast wave comes and blows all of you 20 miles down the road. So... And that's what the blast wave does, people. Okay, it just blows everything. It's three, four hundred miles an hour. It just blows everything away. So, in order to do what is the classic sense of EMP, you have to have a megaton type of weapon, and you have to launch it on a rocket above the Van Allen radiation belt, above your target. Okay. Now, in theory, the Russians or the Chinese could do this over one spot in the USA and pretty much get most of the USA in a very bad explosion. That's just it. It's going to take the Russians or the Chinese to do that because making a megaton weapon is not also just a thousand times larger than a kiloton. It is a million times harder, and it is a million times more expensive to make a fusion weapon than it is to make a fission weapon. A dear friend of mine and mentor of mine who's now deceased, Ed York, designed nuclear weapons, and he also designed all of our civil defense against nuclear weapons. His civil defense stuff that you see in shelters, I mean, he's the man who pioneered it. He's the one who taught me all my EMP stuff. So, I mean, so you got these little podunk, third-world, hole-in-the-cave nations making nuclear weapons, North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, okay? These little places are not going to make a fusion weapon. They are going to make a fission weapon. They don't have the money. They don't have the talent. It's literally a million times more expensive, and they're spending lots of their GNP already on it. And it's a million times harder to make a fusion weapon than it is a fission weapon. The United States spent trillions of dollars on this to do it the way they do it today. The Russians are not going to nuke us because they have interdependent trade with the United States. The Chinese sure as heck aren't going to nuke us because 
how much of our debt do they owe? Okay, we are an interdependent, globally connected world now on trade. They just are not going to go off and kill their best customer. It just does not work that way. Well, you, whether you agree or disagree, I don't know. Some of you out there are probably hollering at the radio right now. But I'm sorry, these are the facts as I know it. Now, your silly little Faraday cage. People think I can go get some window screen or some copper, I can make a Faraday cage, and it's going to protect whatever I put into it. No, it's not, okay? You need to have a very well-engineered, special material, special thickness, Faraday cage in order to protect from a real EMP pulse, which is not going to happen. Did I mention that? So as an example to you, to prove to you, because you don't believe me, go get an FM radio. See, an EMP pulse is made up of two parts, two waves. One is a very long wave that comes from the depression of the Van Allen radiation belt through the Earth's magnetic field, okay? The other one is a bunch of frequencies about from 200 to 800 megahertz, and that is what really fries your electronics is that one. Uh, the one that gets the transmission lines is the long wave that I mentioned about. So go get an FM radio and tune it up someplace to a powerful station up near 108 megahertz and turn it all the way up, okay? So you got this radio going full boom. Wrap the radio in aluminum foil. I'm talking like a transistor radio, people, okay? You can hold it in your hand. Wrap it in aluminum foil. Now take the aluminum foil radio and put that inside of a candy tin like you might get hard candy in for Christmas. That's a metal box. Now take that metal candy tin, metal box, and put it inside of a popcorn tin, which is, you know, about big enough to hold a basketball, and people give them away this time of year around Christmas as presents. So now you got aluminum foil wrapped radio inside of a candy tin inside of a popcorn tin. Take that popcorn tin and put it inside of a metal trash can with a lid. Now go to wherever that FM transmitter is for the radio station and drive right up to the fence, right up to the tower. And you know what? I bet you you'll be able to hear that FM radio playing inside all that shielding. So if this doesn't protect your electronics, what do you think an EMP pulse is going to do that's a million times stronger, millions of times stronger than you standing next to that FM radio station tower? It's not going to do very much. You are completely vulnerable. The good news is it's not going to happen. So don't worry about it. Don't use it as a yardstick or a measure for your preparedness. It's not going to happen. It's not going to get you. Just buy regular electronics and use them for the disasters that are going to hit you. And I think Jack will have some nice words about that. And this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Thank you very much for calling in the question. I mean, even if we disagree, and I, I try to explain the science to you so you can understand and agree, uh, very good question. And, hey, guys, at knowledgepublications.com, I have 20% off of all books and DVDs, only books and DVDs, with the coupon code BLACK20. That's B-L-A-C-K-2-0. No spaces, no nothing. Upper or lower case works just fine. And as always, all my stuff I've done with Jack is at solar1234.com. Thanks, Steve, for calling in a good question. I hope some more of you guys can call in even better questions, and uh, I'll talk to you next Friday. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye. So with that, 
if we go back to the whole but 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 CME coronal mass ejection that does the same thing because the sun gets pissed off and has a bad day. Um, first of all, those events generally are different in their severity than an EMP. Additionally, believe it or not, our technology, while not perfect and not as hardened as it should be, is a hell of a lot better than it was in 1859. Next up, it is about 99% the case that if there were going to be a massive solar storm CME ejection type thing, then there is the 1% of 1% chance that it could some kind of crazy thing could just hiccup. But in general, the sun moves through cycles. We cont continuously monitor the sun. We would probably know in advance in this day and age if it was coming. And that would, if we had to, even allow for a, a significant portion of the grid to be shut down. But in the end, you ain't going to do nothing about it. No way. You can make up all your little uh, Faraday cages that you make YouTube videos about and what have you, and the reality is if something's going to screw up electronics, your little system probably will not prevent it. That's what Steve just explained to you, and it's just been explained to him by people that wrote the book on this type of thing. And I, I'm back to something that I want to transition into now. Why are you going to spend your time and energy and money uh, and effort Uh, and resources on something that you cannot actually affect or that the odds of ever having any effect on your life are very low. And I'm going to take a turn away, completely away, from what we have been talking about. I'm going to read a little article that I wrote today that's on the blog. You might want to share with some of your friends that haven't snapped onto this Uh, this level of, uh, of awareness yet. And some of you may actually benefit from actually doing the exercise. And some of you may not even need the exercise. But once I read the article, you'll go, yeah, he's right. And I need to let go of this. So here we go. The article, and don't be offended by it, snowflakes, right? Uh, are you an easily let moron? Use this simple exercise to find out. And I have a quote there from Polybus that is as follows. The mob is easily led and may be moved by the smallest force so that its agitations have a wonderful resemblance to that of the sea. Think about that as I read this to you. Okay, assuming you're not an easily offended snowflake and the title didn't outrage you beyond your ability to be rational, let me explain my goal with this short article. I want to be, I want to free as many people as possible from being easily led and controlled by outrage at things that you don't have any control over. What don't you control? A lot of shit. But let me tell you, if it's on the national news and generating hundreds of memes on Facebook, there is a 99.9999999998% chance or thereabouts that you don't have any control over it at all. Worse, your outrage is going to be very short-lived and replaced soon by a new outrage du jour. That means outrage of the day for those that don't speak French. But in these cycles, it generally more an outrage de la sermaine. Sermaine means weak or outrage of the weak. The Facebook really is a direct look at the control that the media has over America, and I have marveled over the years watching this control. I'll admit it. I used to be an easily led moron, too. I would get stuck into this stupid cycle. 
I had to recognize the pattern to break free from it. Now I simply mock these issues from my own personal amusement, usually angering both sides. The reality, though, is my hope is always just one or two people will recognize how controlled they are and begin to break free. See, dear reader, the title of this article isn't really accurate. I watch otherwise intelligent people get sucked into this all the time. They are not morons. More accurately, they are being manipulated into acting like morons. And it is very hard to convince someone they are being a moron if they are an otherwise intelligent person and if they're acting on principle. These issues usually split left and right, despite what each side thinks about the other. The core philosophies of both are driven by a desire to, quote, do the right thing, end quote. So the media uses this divide over hype shit that is never going to affect you directly, and you can't do anything about it anyway to rev you up and set all of you fighting like a bunch of retarded monkeys. Not I, you say? Really? Then I have a challenge for you. To do it, you'll need two things. First, a notebook, something like one of those black and white composition books you used back in school. You'll also need one of those big old metal clips, those things you can clip a chip bag closed with or something like that. And you're going to need a pen. The last things you're going to need will be a bit more difficult to get a hold of. You will need a few months of discipline and a willingness to be honest with yourself. One thing you won't need much of is time. This should take way less than five minutes a week. Here's what you're going to do. Mondays are great for this as the weekend news cycle will have people raring to go. So every Monday, open your book and write down whatever event is going on that you're the most upset about that day. Also write down how you think it will affect your life and what bad things are going to happen to you or your friends due to it. If you believe you have some ability to influence it, write that down too. Now take the metal clip and click the page to the front cover so when you open the book, you can't see it. From now on, at least every Monday, make an entry. If something really upsets you during the week, make an entry for that too. The rules are you are not allowed to look at anything held by the clip. And as soon as you make an entry, you clip it. Do this for at least two months. Three is better. If this week you are still upset about the same thing as last week, go ahead and enter it again. Stick to it, be honest with your entries, and be willing to follow the rules. Once something gets clipped, you can't look at it again at all. No peeking. Set a date on your calendar either 8 or 12 weeks into the future. When the big day comes, remove the clip and start reading on page 1. Read each page up to the current week, and then you ask yourself these four questions. Number one, how many of these things had I totally forgotten about? Two, how much influence did I have over the outcome of these things? Three, is anything in my personal life actually different due to any of these things? And number four, how many of them might I have never even thought of again had I not written them down? Many of you just got it. And you won't even have to do the exercise now. Some of you think I'm a jackass here. So humor me. Take the challenge. I'd love to see videos of people reading their books aloud 8 to 12 weeks from now. 
most people that read this article won't be willing to do this. That's fine. But just know, most of America is controlled with this constant cycle of nonsense. So what is the alternative? It's something I call proactive apathy. Proactive apathy is a total lack of interest over that which you can't control, with full focus and effort applied to that which you can control. Anything else is simply being controlled by emotions generated by events that you have no impact on. The choice is yours. You can either be easily led and controlled, or you can control your own thoughts, actions, and emotions. Even if you think none of this applies to you, take the challenge. You have nothing to lose, and it will teach you something about yourself. P.S. Why not bookmark this article, and the next time you see someone totally losing their shit about something they won't even remember in two weeks' time, provide the link to them. And I'll have a link to that article for you, and I might even spin this off into a little YouTube segment. I think it's something that many people in America really need to hear, and I'm going to go back and read the Polybus quote again. The mob is easily led and may be moved by the smallest force so that its agitations have the wonderful resemblance to the sea. The people that are in control of society, the people that generate and control what the media says and does, the people that decide what story they're going to use to piss you off on Sunday evening so that you'll go to work on Monday morning and jump on the computer and argue with your friends on Facebook instead of doing work for the guy that's employing you, those people, that's exactly how they see you. It's like being able to take their hand and put it into the sea and cause a wave to wash up on the shore of Africa from the shore of Florida with a simple flick of the hand. That's how you're seen. You are clay to be molded into the image which they want from you that individual day. And I just wonder, if, if you took if anybody out there that you really get upset over these news stories and you really think they matter and you really get revved and you really, God, Jack, this is just, don't you understand how important it is? Humor me. Try it. And I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal. I'll make a deal with anybody that will do this to do a drawing. We'll go with eight weeks instead of 12. So that's eight weeks from today. Um, anytime during that week, if you'll upload a video of yourself reading your own book and going through and giving your honest thoughts about it as you read it, including I was right and Jack's wrong, it doesn't matter. Anybody that will get a, a video of themselves uploaded in that week, I will put you into a pool. I will give away $100 worth of cryptocurrency to whoever I randomly draw out of the people to do that. And you may be thinking, gee, that's that's not going to be very useful uh, because I'll, I never win things. I'll, I'll bet you, I'll bet you less than five people are willing to do this in video themselves, to be honest about it. So your odds of winning if you give it a shot are probably somewhere in the number neighborhood of one in five. And uh, I'm not going to say anything else about it. When we get to that time period, if anybody sends me a video, if one person does it, 100 bucks in your choice of cryptocurrency. Uh, and with that, we'll move on from there. Uh, next one I have is a, a kind of two-part question, not really related. The question is from Jeremy, and Jeremy says, Any advice on winter or early spring fishing pattern for crappie and catfish from a boat? What are your thoughts on eating wild pigs uh, since Texas started poisoning them this year? Thanks, uh, from Fort Worth. Okay, let's do the pigs one first because it's really easy. I'm not worried about the pig thing at all. Um the the toxin, if you want to call it that, that they're using on these pigs is a toxin used on humans all the time by the pharmaceutical industry called warfarin. It's a blood thinner. And 
the way this stuff works is when pigs take it, they, they react to it incredibly... Um, uh, it, it, it's much more effective on pigs than it is on humans. Pigs and humans are actually pretty good analogs in a lot of things for testing, but pigs really like have an incredible reaction to warfarin where their blood thins so much they basically hemorrhage out and die. You are not going to eat a pig that has consumed enough warfarin to still be alive and its meat pose a threat to you. It's just not going to happen. It just it, it doesn't work that way. Um, I would also say that the places these pigs are being poisoned with warfarin are probably not the places that you would be hunting for them or shooting them anyway. Uh, it's not like people are running around in the Trinity River bottoms uh, putting out warfarin uh, packets for pigs. Uh, these are generally farmers and ranchers that are having significant damage done to their property, and it probably isn't being as done as people make it out to be. Again, it's probably more than ranchers. It's probably more than ranchers. It's farmers. Uh, the ranchers tend to say they hate pigs, but they all tend to like eating them. Uh, most of the larger ranches in Texas, even if they are a cattle ranch, a working cattle ranch, also are hunting ranches, and they get a hell of a lot of money for someone to come shoot a pig that they supposedly hate. And the pigs will eat some of the corn and may mess some stuff up, and the pigs may kill young white-tailed deer, and they certainly don't like that, but in the end, there's a balance to things there. The guy that's putting in a cornfield that comes back and his entire crop has been destroyed by one sonder of pigs that came through, he's a guy out there using warfarin, and you're probably not hunting on his corn farm. So I'm just not worried about it anyway. Uh, as far as early and spring fish, winter and spring fishing, um, not my strong suit. Catfish, I will tell you, one of the, the great ways to pattern catfish here in the North Texas area specifically in the, the early months is to look for places where cormorants congregate. And cormorants, if you don't know, just Google cormorant. They're a big, they call them water turkeys. They're a big, ugly aquatic bird. And uh, they migrate through. And they'll, they'll hole up like in standing timber or under bridges or something like that. And this is going to sound gross, but they poop. And they poop in a lot of quantity in an individual area, and that will bring in early season catfish heavily, and it's early season they happen to be around here. That's about my best one. I'm the guy that starts fishing heavily in, like, March. I don't like to go out in the cold on a boat. On crappie, I, I, you're, you're, I mean, crappie are uh, a fish of habit. They're, they're my, I don't really fish for crappie. I've never really targeted crappie. Um, but when I have caught some, it's usually been around, you know, bridge pylons, and over um, brush piles. Those are the two places I've caught the most crappie. I should probably become a crappie fisherman and teach myself to catch crappie because it would be another species uh, that's widely available, tastes really good, uh, and is you know excellent eating, and you can keep a whole bunch of them and nobody looks at like they want to stab you with a knife because they know there'll be more and more and more of them anyway. Um, the best luck I've had with crappie other than hitting those pylons and stuff is when they spawn and they come in the shallow water, and it's pretty well known in any area when that's going on, and just minnows under a cork. Uh, I mean, that, that's that's like everybody can be a genius at catching crappie, you know, for that short window of time every year. Uh, catfishing in our area, generally they spawn more in early summer to very late spring, uh, rather than the time that you're asking about. 
And that's kind of when I really start looking for them. In the end, in the end, it's always about structure, edge, and bait fish. If you find large congregations of bait fish or any large congregation of anything that the animal wants to eat, i.e. cormorants, you will find fish. Then it will be a matter of enticing them to eat what's on the end of your line. That's the best I can do for you there, but don't worry about the piggies. Next question comes from Matthew. Matthew says, what kind type brand of homebrewing kegs do you recommend for a kegerator? Details, I'm remembering mentioning in one of the simple cider homebrewing episodes that you put cider in a keg with CO2 on it rather than worry about adding sugar and bottling. That's correct. Uh, my wife got me an Insignia 5.6 cubic foot single tap kegerator. It's a combination birthday, anniversary, Christmas present. You've heard happy wife, happy life. But I like to add happy. I'd like to add happy husband with a kegerator to the end of it. My introductory Yingling one quarter keg is now empty, and I'd like to start putting my homebrew cider on tap. I'd like to use a shorter keg in the two to two and a half gallon range, so I can use one of the shelves for other beers. I'm not worried about the smaller capacity of the keg since cider finishes in two weeks. I imagine T-Spaz might not be feasible due to bulk shipping, perhaps yet another MSB discount for this year. Anyway, thanks all you do. I'll look back in the past year and a half. I've been listening and comparing it to the changes we've made in our lives. What a difference. Guess I'll add another shout-out to Nighthawk, since he's the one that got me listening to you in the first place. Cheers, Matt from Eastern PA. Well, Matt, I'm very jealous that you have Yingling beer on tap, and I do not. And I'm very jealous at you people in Kentucky because Yingling has been teasing us for like the past four months as to what the new state would be announced this year. And they've announced it. And even though they put Texas on their little map, uh, little gifts and stuff, it was just a tease. And they have now put Yingling beer into Kentucky and we in Texas still have no Yingling. You Yingling people, uh, you guys know me. I was friends with your family and a lot of other things, and you would make me really happy if you would bring Yingling beer to Texas. And I can promise you this, there's probably not a state you could come to that would make you more money by by introducing your beer to it than the state of Texas. You guys would make a killing if you came here. Come on. Anyway, so here's the thing. You say you, quarter, you had a Yingling quarter barrel in this thing. I don't know what exactly you have if it's designed to hook up to the beer kegs that we typically get from brew stores. It's probably not designed to hook up to the type of kegerator that generally people home build. The type that we generally home build are, in general, made up of either keg, they're called Cornelius kegs, and they're either a Pepsi or Coke type. Another way to look at that is called pin lock or ball lock. And the way these work is the fittings that go onto them. Either kind of you push them on and they twist and they lock onto some pins. And one side and the gas side, I think, has two pins and the liquid side three or vice versa so that you can't screw them up. Uh, by the way, if you shove one on the one that doesn't belong, you can get it stuck and it is hard to get it off. So you can screw it up, but you can't effectively hook it up wrong. And then there's ball lock, right? And these are the Coke ones, I believe, are the ball lock ones. But you have a little push button kind of thing, and it kind of pops on and locks with a series of ball bearings that lock the valve on, and you have a push to release to disconnect the keg. Um, and from what I've now, I haven't, I haven't partaken in a keg of beer from a beer store in a very long time. We're back to red cups and two bucks a head to get in since I did that. Okay, so I'm thinking of the old school type of tap and if that is what your machine does 
I don't know what to advise you. Okay, I would advise you this though. I would advise you to go to a homebrew store, take pictures of what you have with you, and go there, and they can probably help you and find some solution for you. Or you may find that you want to buy the materials to add Cornelius keg capability to your system. The other thing is when you buy a keg of beer, again, unless there's some new product I don't know about, but in general, when you buy a keg of beer from the beer store, uh, the tap will have a pump to keep some pressure on it, but the beer in the keg is carbonated. When you build your own kegerators and use CO2 pressurized tanks to distribute the beer, you can also use it to carbonate the beer, and it doesn't work the same way. So again, I'm not really sure what you have. Okay, uh, so you have to kind of justify this. As far as Cornelius kegs, they do make two and a half gallon Cornelius kegs. I have a link to a site called morebeer.com, and uh, I have a link to one of them for you that's like 80-something bucks. I don't like them, and I'm going to tell you why I don't like them. They're fine in of themselves. However, I don't like to pay more and get less. A five-gallon Cornelius keg can generally be had for about 50 bucks, a two-and-a-half-gallon keg can generally be had for about $80 to $90. You see my problem with that? You, 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 you kind of get it? And there's a reason. The two-and-a-half-gallon kegs are not widely used in the beverage market where kids go and make suicides out of mixing Pepsi, Mountain Dew, and Taba, or whatever the hell else, or Sprite. Um, because those, those places do business in such volume that it doesn't make sense for them to have smaller kegs. So the kegerator market is full of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these five-gallon kegs that have basically, you know, they've been used by, you know, a restaurant or whatever, and they get to a point where the guy's like, I just, it's, it's, it's not worth rebuilding it, I'll just get new ones, and they go into the recycled market, and enterprising homebrew stores take them and, and put new seals in them and stuff like that and make and pressure test them to make sure they work and then they sell them. So there's this much larger market of used kegs and there's a much larger market of even new kegs because there's more volume of them out there so they're more affordable. So I recommend generally that people when they're designing a kegerator design their kegerator around the concept of a five gallon keg. And that if you want to do something like have a one gallon uh, of beer, instead of buying one of these expensive pressurizable things, just get a double-walled insulated one-gallon or half-gallon growler, however much you want to take where you want to be. You have your kegerator. You, you have your carbonated beer or cider. It's nice and cold. It's the way you want it. You dispense it into your growler. You seal it up tight so that it doesn't go flat on you, and you take it to wherever you want to go. In your case, you want to do this because of saving space. Assuming that you can make the Cornelius keg work and you're willing to spend the extra money for the convenience of having the space available for other beer, I'm not sure what that means, whether it means like keeping some bottles or something like that in there, then go ahead and do it. If you do mean it from the standpoint of like keeping some bottles of Chimay or stuff like that around, I would say that for the, the price differential, you could get yourself two old-school five-gallon Cornelius kegs so that you can always have a new one ready to go in uh, when the old one comes out. 
And uh, you would, with the price difference of, of buying those little little ones, you could then go out and buy you know a good old style college mini fridge to keep your extra beers in. If you mean because you want to keep using one of the quarter barrels from the brewery, then I completely understand what you're saying. But again, I don't know if the two are compatible. Because here's your other issue: assuming that you're willing to put a second tap into your system. And you're willing to invest in um, the pressure gauge, etc., to be able to use a CO2 tank and pressurize your own Cornelius kegs. You're not only going to have to fit a keg in there and the valves in there, which the valves aren't that much of a challenge, but you're also going to have to fit a five-pound CO2 tank. It would be about the smallest you'd want to go in there. And that's pretty close to the size of a two-and-a-half-gallon keg, So again, not sure where you're at with this. Maybe I'm completely off base and it's all ready to go with Cornelius kegs. If so, the big thing. Make sure if you have pin lock, you order pin lock. And make sure if you have ball lock, you order ball lock. And I'm not sure because I've never looked deeply into it, but I believe most of the two-and-a-half-gallon kegs that are out there are, in fact, ball lock kegs. Anyway, and if you had to pick between pin lock and ball lock, I have both. And ball lock generally are more available. You can generally get better pricing on them, and they are a little less likely to have problems in my uh, experience with leakage. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one just dumbfounds me. It does and it doesn't, um, because I deal with it all the time. Ryan Llewellyn from the Cold War cast was on our show last week on Wednesday for interview day. I got an email from him yesterday. This is what the email said. Jack, I want to say thank you for having me on Wednesday. I've been a fan of the show since 2010. I consider it an honor to get to come on. I appreciate it. I got an email from someone after the show asking me, quote, why my worldview was so limited that I couldn't bring up the Nazi Rothschild connection at some point when it is apparently relevant in the discussion. I can only imagine the kind of shit that winds up in your inbox. Um, I, I, again, I'm dismayed, but I'm not, because I deal with this all the time. This is narcissism by the person that did this. If you're out there listening, I want you to listen. I'm not going to beat you up or yell at you and tell you you're a dumbass or anything. I am telling you this is narcissism in a way that may be hard for you to understand. People that do this shit think that their thing that they've latched onto is so important that everybody else knows as much about it as they do, and they either are on their side or they're on the other side. It, it, it could be whoever did this that Ryan just didn't even consider this in the discussion we were having. I know I'm very well aware of I don't know about Nazi Rothschild so much, but the connection between companies like I.G. Farvin with old man Bush, Prescott Bush, George Sr.'s father, uh, and the Nazis during World War II. That, that's completely something that I've talked about before. I saw no need or relevance or connection whatsoever in my discussion with Ryan where we were specifically speaking about dystopian fiction including 1984, The Day After, The Twilight Zone, and um, uh, Red Dawn. That was the topic we were discussing. There was no relevance whatsoever to this. But in your mind, you feel like there is because 
They know and they won't tell us. Ryan said he was he almost thought about emailing you back and saying, that's because I'm in on this conspiracy and you better be quiet if you know what's good for you, just to make a freaking joke. But I see this shit happen all the time. People bring up something that has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but you're in on it. You're, you're a shill or something. Do you know how many times that I've said something about global warming and my disbelief in the standard uh, viewpoint of AGW and the bullshit that the government says and been told something like, you're a shill for the oil company. Yeah, I'm so freaking important, right? I'm such a big name that Shell Oil pays me. That's why I do this. You are narcissistic when you do this stuff. You think that your issue is that important that everybody owes it to you that whenever they get within a mile of it, to swim a mile through shit to get to talk about it because you want them to. It's nonsense. And I really think that people like this, you could benefit highly, highly from that little exercise at the beginning of today's show. I, I just, I shake my head in absolute disbelief. But I also at the same time go, there it is again. So it, you can't be, you can't be shocked by it, Jack. I don't know that I'd be shocked by anything anymore. When I first started this show, I had people, I had one guy in particular that I think had a mental illness, in addition to narcissism, that was convinced that I, Ron Hood, and the Rockwells, who were moderators on the forum at the time and ran the first TSP gear store, were all shills working for the CIA. I'm going to just say this, guys. If you want to be an alternative media, the rewards are great. If you want to do a podcast or a blog or anything, but if you go into these worlds, you are going to attract these type of people that have mental problems, that are convinced that the whole world doesn't understand except them, and if you don't jump on board with what they want you to talk about, when they want you to talk about it, you're on the other side. It's... It would be funny if it wasn't so damn sad. I mean, that's the way I'll put it. It's sad. It, 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 it makes me a little bit depressed to think of people that sit around like this instead of get out and get shit done. Because if you're worried about the Nazi Rothschild connection, when Nazi Germany hadn't been in existence in your adult life, in your life, Most of these people, they're, you know, you're not 80 or 90 years old. You've never been alive when the Nazis were in control of everything, and you're still obsessing over some potential connection to the point where when somebody's having a totally different conversation, you're offended that they didn't bring up your issue? Something's wrong. Something's really wrong, and it is narcissism. Here's another example. I had a guy one time on Facebook, jumps in the middle of a thread and starts posting all kinds of ancient history of things he doesn't like about me when he's been a fan for 10 years because he had sent me an email or a message or something about some group of people doing something in permaculture, and I had the nerve not to talk about it. I mean, this is, if, again, if you go into this line of work, it's incredibly rewarding, but this is what you're in for. People actually feel that they're entitled to tell you what you should have said, and whether you knew about it or not, you're wrong for not having done it. It's, it, it is a sad state of affairs, and again, it is a very narcissistic viewpoint. On another note, something totally different, Luke emails me and says, How would you remove paint? From a cast iron fry pan. Background, I found an old national fry pan at my parents' house. 
that they have been using to collect ash from their wood stove. When I asked about this, I could just have it. Turns out my great aunt's pan, she painted the inside of it at one time because it was rusting. My mom didn't know how to cook with cast iron, has no ambition to learn, so I decided to take it and restore it to our collection of cookware. Problem is I'm finding a lot of different methods online for doing this involving paint thinner, superheating, and even just still wool. I was wondering what you would use to do it. Well, Luke, I would either use a paint stripper or I would use heat. And, and I think either one's okay and it's more on what you want to do. I think some people will be afraid to use paint stripper because it's toxinous, poison. Well, once you get the paint off it and you heat it up and clean it up and, and start seasoning it, it, it won't mess gone anyway. It's volatile. It's going to go away. Uh, that's what volatile chemicals do. They go away off into the ether. Um, heat's probably the best way. Just use caution that you don't get it hot enough to crack it. That can and does happen at times. But you could probably do worse than to just like basically build a like such charcoal fire inside of it. Uh, you let that, you know, set it on the grill, put some charcoal in it, start the charcoal on fire, let the charcoal burn down to ash, dump it out. Let it cool, don't put water on, it's hot or it will crack. And, and, and then kind of just rub it down with some steel wool or, or what have you. And you probably have a pretty good surface to start with. At that point, you may want to then take it for a ride in a self-cleaning oven. Uh, if you did that with the paint on it, it's going to eat the paint off. But the, the, the paint smoke and stink is going to come out of your oven. Like, I wouldn't do that. But once it's basically stripped off, if you still think it needs to go further down, it probably won't, though. Then you can just begin the, the general seasoning process, knock all of the rust off it if there's any underlying rust or any rust turns up during the heat process, because probably will, and move on from there. And it's not hard, and it's not a big deal. Um, I did find one cast iron pan uh, at an antique mall around here. It had been painted. Uh, it had like a, a picture of like a rooster on it or a chicken or something on the backside. They made it into a piece of artwork, but it turned out to be an old Griswold. Well, when I got home and looked closer at it, I realized that it had been painted on the not just the backside but the inside, and that's exactly what I did. I threw it on the grill. I filled it up with some charcoal. I lit it on fire and just took it from there, and it wasn't any big deal. Um, that one had a lot of paint. Though. It took like two, two sessions like that to totally get all the paint off of it without making it hard work. I think the bigger thing, though, is taking a family heirloom and bringing it back. Good on you for it. And, uh, you know, like I said, just, just be careful that you don't get it too hot because – That is the kind of thing that can cause you know you lose something. So I've seen people like throw them in a great big roaring fire, and uh, if it was my family heirloom, if it's what my family had a swap meet, I'm not worried. But if it's my family heirloom, I try to be a little more cautious. If you don't want to do the heat thing, like again, paint just a good paint stripper and just follow the instructions on the label. It'll take it right off. Uh, next up, I have a question from let's see, info. It doesn't give a name at all. Uh, hey, Jack, just uh, a request. You've mentioned a few times that you have, that you case public spaces like restaurants when eating out. I'd love to hear how you do it, what you look for, where you sit, etc. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Okay, so here's the thing. When you go to a restaurant, you generally don't get to decide where you sit. So I generally do not object to wherever they seat me, but I pay attention to how where we're in the table that I sit, with an exception or two. If I feel like I'm put into a position where if something goes wrong, I'm going to be really stuck and out of sorts, especially if the place is crowded and it might be difficult for me to adjust to that, 
I might request to be sat somewhere else, and I usually won't tell them why. I'll just say, like, it's too noisy here, it's too much traffic, it's too close to the bathroom, whatever. That doesn't happen very often. It's probably once or twice in my life where I'm like, this is like, this is literally the kill box, and I'm not sitting here. Um, I want you to understand that I am not just concerned with some active shooter coming in and shooting the place up, though that is the place I start, because if I'm going to deal with that, anything else probably can be dealt with a little bit easier. I'm also concerned about things like, well, what if there's a fire? Uh, what if some maniac loses control of their vehicle, comes flying through the window into the, into the place from the parking lot? So I generally don't like to sit up against the wall in a park, you know, where the parking lot is, where that can happen, if, especially if there's nothing there that would prevent it. I've seen things like that happen way too many times. Um, if I'm going to sit in a place like that, uh, then either neither myself nor anybody with me is going to have our back to the window. It's so where you're both going to sit on the same side of the table, so at least you can see it coming and get the hell out of the way. Um, but fire, uh, something causing a panic or a shooter are the three things I'm most concerned with, and I start with the shooter. So what I say to myself is two different things. One, if I was just a random ass-clown idiot that just wanted to do damage and shoot a bunch of people for whatever damn reason there was, how would I enter and what would I do? I put myself in the bad guy's position. And then, as I think about how that would play out, I think about where I am, where am I in that sequence of events, and how would I respond to it? And again, my big thing is I never want my back to where people would be coming from. I want to be facing out so I can direct my wife or small children with me, take defensive action, return fire, whatever it is. I want to be ready to do that. Um, the other thing I think about, though, and I don't think enough people think about this, is what if I'm a disgruntled employee? See, that might go down a completely different way. So that means that the kitchen, the back, anywhere like that can also be an avenue through which some type of threat may come. And then I'm going to run that same scenario in my head. And I also think about, well, if there was a fire, if there was just some need to get out of here, where's my closest exit? What's my secondary exit? What's in between me and there? You know, things like that. How do I get out of here? And if I can't get out of here, where's my cover and my concealment? And I want you to understand, this is not, I do not walk around paranoid. I take about 20 to 30 seconds when I'm sat at a restaurant, for instance, to just look around and assess that, that very question. And just so in my head, there is a, there's already a predetermination. If somebody came in there with a gun, I'm moving this way. I'm grabbing my wife here. I'm returning, you know, whatever it is. Like, because each situation, but so there's some pre-wired component. If something, if there's a fire, that's the way out. That old dude there looks like he could use some help. He's on the way. If I can help somebody, I've already picked out my person to help. I'm going to grab my, he's going out without his feet touching the ground if he has to. There's a lady with two kids. I'm going to tell her go. I want to pick one of her kids, whatever. Like, I think in my head, like, what would I do right now if this happened? And as soon as I have an answer to that question, I sit down and enjoy my meal. I'm done. And that forethought, that situational awareness is one of the greatest advantages you can give yourself. I do this, you know, in a movie theater. Go sit down and watch a movie. I'm not so worried about the you know Aurora, Colorado shooter uh, happening again. In these situations, there's only so much you can do, but I am worried that some fool's going to scream fire or be right when he screams fire, and you're going to have 400 people trying to get out the same door at the same time when maybe the better door's over there. 
I don't like to sit like when we go to movie theaters for a variety of reasons, but I don't like to sit like in the center of a long row. I, it, when we go to concerts, anything like that, I always want to be on the end. It's more convenient, but in the event that something goes wrong, you have more options instead of being surrounded by people that don't know where to go and don't know what to do. I like to be, if there's like multiple sections, I like to be in the front row of a section. I'd rather be in the front row of the second section than the middle of the first. Getting closer is not always better. I like the front row of the first if I can. But you see what I'm saying. Corners in, in those situations. If I'm in a mall, God forbid, because I don't know how long it's been, but if I, if I have to go to a mall or anything like that, you know, I'm always looking around and just saying, if I had to get out of here, where would I go? Where could I take cover? Who can I help? And it's just, it's a 30-second thing. It's just a 30-second thing. And it also is a big way not to be a victim. Because when you're thinking that way, and when you're looking around and you're checking stuff out, you're alert, you're aware, and you look like you got your shit together. And it doesn't mean that no one will ever decide to try to victimize you. But in general, criminals are scum and they're cowards. And they are good, if they're especially criminals that get away with things for a long time, at determining the right victim in the right situation. Simply by not looking like prey, you tend to be less likely to become prey. I know that seems almost like um, an oversimplification, um, but it really isn't. And it, again, it doesn't have to be 100% to be worth doing. Something that's 90% effective is worth doing. Something that's 1% effective when the alternative is dying is worth trying. And this is the philosophy that I use in my daily life with all things. Uh, next, I have a question from Michael. Michael says, um, Jack, I know you have a lot of experience with dogs. I have some experience with dogs. I have some Some good experiences. I'm not a dog whisperer, just so before we go on with this. So I thought I'd send you this question. My girlfriend and I have two dogs. One's a neutered 11-year-old male schnauzer, Australian Shepherd. She has had him since he was a puppy. About two and a half years ago, she got another mini Aussie. She's now three years old, spayed female. Male's medium-sized 30-pound dog. He's pretty laid back and well-trained. Female was a runt. Small 20-pound dog. She's always been an anxious dog. She's also trained. Both dogs are crate-trained, house-trained, and wait to be told before they can eat. They do basic sit, roll over, etc. Both dogs will bark when someone comes to the door. The male will stop when told down. The female, however, continues to bark and can't be let out of her crate when strangers are here because she growls at them viciously and barks continuously and appears to want to attack them. She's already bitten my girlfriend's mother, the youngest daughter who admittedly had teased her before, and eventually some friends of my girlfriend's son in the past. Legally, she's had more than her free bite, but she's never been reported. She also attacks and bites the steel Kirby vacuum cleaner, the dishwasher, and tries to attack the printer when we print something. We have to crate her when we vacuum the floor, let friends into the house, or lately to keep her from attacking other older male dog. He was trained not to go after pack members, so he doesn't defend himself other than to avoid her. When I'm there, I follow your neck pinch advice and hold her to the ground. The daughter usually just makes her go into the crate. Tonight, my girlfriend told me we need to do something about her because it isn't getting better. Her idea was to somehow desensitize her to various machines we use if possible. Her fear is she will continue attacking the other dog or possibly a family member or a friend. She attacks the other dog when she can't get to the machines that she doesn't like. Other than the daughter who teased her, she hasn't gone after any of us, including me. 
I was introduced to her because they had her already when I came into the picture. In fact, when I come home, she comes to me wagging her tail all excited. Of course, I'm the one who feeds her in the morning, so that may have something to do with it. And he keeps going. Um, I get the gist of it. And he says the dog was acquired from a local breeder, and it's not a puppy mill or shelter dog. Um, so, you know, what, what do I think you can do? I, I don't know. I don't know. Let me, let's start off with how I would have prevented this from happening in the first place. The most important thing when it comes to having a dog not be this way is that when they're a puppy, before they develop this characteristics, to put them in such a situation that they never develop them. One of the best, like, best places in the world for your puppy to go is places that are dog friendly that have lots of people like Petco and PetSmart and, and usually Lowe's and Home Depots are okay with dogs coming in. And the time to take that dog is not now you got her the way she is, but when they're little bitty puppies, when there's people around them all the time, strangers coming and going and stuff like that. And then we can train aggression where necessary if it's desirable in the dog based on the dog's role. But that way the dog's, the dog's default is non-aggression, and aggression is the result of training, and it's the exception rather than the rule. Unfortunately, we don't have that. What we do have is a dog that's exhibiting behaviors of aggression toward people, other animals, and appliances, okay? I'm going to go back, and you have to decide for yourself how well this would work for you, but the shot collar. And I'm telling you, I'd put that shot collar on that dog, and I would not set it off for a week. I would resi resist. I wouldn't even. I would put the. I wouldn't even charge it. I'd put it on her in the morning and take it off in the evening and put it back on the evening and take it off in the morning and on and off and on and off. So it's just a thing. It's just a thing. It's she completely desensitized to this additional collar that she sometimes wears, and then I would charge that sucker up, and then I would set her up for failure. I'd get your girlfriend to go fire up the vacuum cleaner. Dog would go after the vacuum cleaner. By the way, I'd remove the other dog from the house during the training. Put him out in the yard. Put him in his crate. Get him away from her so it's just her and her consequence. And it's, she attacks, no, shock. And set it to the lowest setting you can. And if it doesn't work, turn it up, no, shock. Doesn't work, so you get the minimum level of correction necessary for the dog to have a strong reaction to being shocked. No, zap. Turn the vacuum off. Sit down like nothing happened. Don't continue this. Oh, because she might not stop. She might die and then go back at it, right? As soon as she gets shocked, shut the vacuum off. Or maybe vacuum for one more second. So it doesn't look like she got the vacuum to stop. Shut the vacuum off. Set it down. Wait till the dog goes off and finds something to do with itself. Turn the vacuum back on. No, zap. Once or twice, and we're done with that for today. And then we're going to wait till something naturally occurs where the dog behaves this way again. We're going to set it up so that we know at that time to remove the male. So there's no possible conflict between the two of them. Until she begins to associate the command of no with, if I'm told no and I don't cease the behavior, I get this incredibly painful electric bite in my neck. And I don't like that. So I'm going to stop this shit. And then what you need is a person 
who generally is behaved aggressively towards a bit, but maybe somebody that's not so much, like the one that teased her, no, an adult that's willing accomplice here, uh, and long pants and boots, like like high boots are a good idea, because a lot of these dogs like to go and bite at like the shin level or the back, and uh, just a good pair of cowboy boots generally is enough to keep from getting hurt by the damn things. And when that dog is aggressive, no. Anything other than compliance, zap. Now, again, you have to be careful with this type of training. It's not no, zap, no, zap, no, zap, no. That doesn't work, right? It's no, zap. And then ignore the dog. She'll probably run off and whimper. Ignore her. And never do this. This is the worst thing you can do. The dog's behaving in a manner that's not acceptable. And you're like, oh, it's okay, baby. Don't use praise. Don't pet them. Don't offer them affection. You either give correction or you ignore them. And I don't know if you can fix this. I don't, with the dog being two and a half years old and being this ingrained, and I am not, what's his name, Caesar, the dog whisperer guy. That's what I would try if I were in this situation. I air this as much for the person that doesn't have this problem yet to keep them from getting it, though, as possible. Um, one of the mistakes I made with Charlie, I did not take him enough places when he was a puppy. Now, I don't have a problem with aggression because enough people come here, and I want some aggression, and I've trained aggression into the dog for certain things. I also have trained, we're done, into the dog. And yes, the shot collar was part of it. But it was much easier to do as a puppy. But, you know, he doesn't like to go in the car. If I had, when he was a pup, thrown him in the car and just taken him places, he'd love the car. Most dogs love cars. But the, the reason they don't is because it's foreign to them. And I've been working with him and Lucy big time on it. And, and part of the reason was I got to the point where I didn't go anywhere as much anymore. You guys, I've said that before. Like, my truck has gotten less mileage put on in the last five years than it did in the first year that I had it, right? Um So I don't go as much anymore, and I don't go as many places where he could go or the dogs could go. Um, but train the behaviors into the dog at the puppy stage. Desensitize and socialize at the puppy stage. Because at the puppy stage, they don't have those characteristics. They don't act that way. right? Because they're, they're, so much, they're in a very malleable and very, very submissive mode. Even a dog that's going to grow up and be a very dominant alpha dog... He may be in the puppy litter somewhat alpha already. You can see it. But in general, in response to the people around him, he's very beta in how he relates to his humans. And the bigger they get, and then the thing is, once they get to that point where they show aggression and they believe they've gotten a response that they want, that's where you get a problem. So you're vacuuming. She attacks the vacuum cleaner. You yell at her. As far as she knows, you're yelling at the vacuum cleaner too. You're both attacking it together. Eventually, you get frustrated and shut the vacuum cleaner off. Okay, I attacked it. It stopped. The mailman comes to the door, and then the mailman leaves. I chased him away. So we have to modify the behavior, not just acquiesce to the behavior. And, and again, you got to be careful here. A dog that bites, man, I'm, I, you know, There, there needs to be a lot of work and a lot of training. And I would start with things like the vacuum cleaner. She bites the vacuum cleaner, so what? Right? One of the reasons I got really on Charlie with the shot collar was he wasn't just attacking things like vacuum cleaners. He was attacking things like weed eaters. 
I had to put the dog in the hat when he was, you know, about half grown, because if I caught a chainsaw, he wanted to attack a chainsaw. If he attacks the weed eater, it might be a self-correcting problem. If he attacks a chainsaw, it's a horrific thing. So the, the, the shock seems so cruel. It's a lot less cruel than the dog ending up rehomed at the pound or having attacked a chainsaw blade while the chain's spinning around on it. And, and I, I do hear from people when I talk about this type of training that, that, that feel like the, uh, it, it's cruel or mean to the dog and how could you do it? Guys, I'm telling you, it's one of the best training tools, if not abuse, that you can get your hands on, in my view. Again, I don't know that it will work, and I'm not saying you should do this. I'm saying this is what I would do. You have to make your own decisions here. This is a, a tough one. Anyway, that rounds out another show. Hope you enjoyed today's show. want to remind you that one of the ways you can support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you can see all my reviews of Amazon products, and as long as you shop from tspaz.com, you'll support the Survival Podcast no matter what we do. I also have a... Uh, a uh, Really cool item for review for you guys today. I'm bringing it back around again. It's been about seven months. It's made by Anchor. You guys know I love Anchor. They're one of my my top suppliers of electronic products. Uh, probably those guys in E-Tech City are my two favorites. Anchor's 24-watt dual USB car charger. This thing's little. It's like one of those little ones that you buy for like 10 bucks at like Best Buy or something like that, except this one actually works really good. It's a very high-speed uh, charger. And it is very inexpensive at $9.95. The top port gives fast charging at 4.8 amps, and the lower port charges at 2.4. And that still gives you a much quicker charge than the average you know, $10, 12-volt charger. Um, I keep one of these in both of my vehicles. And I keep the Anker Astro E7, which is the backup pack that I recommend, plugged into it. And then that's plugged into the slower port. And when I get in, I plug my phone into the fast port. And that way I always have backup power ready to go. And I always have a fully charged phone. Uh, with those two and this little charger, I mean, you go a week if you're rationing your phone power uh, with being able to communicate in a grid down scenario. Plus, as long as your car will run or as long as you got your Harris battery bank or what have you, you can recharge them almost infinitely. So, again, it's made by Anchor. It's a 24-watt dual car USB charger. Really, at $10, it is the best. I would, there's nothing else I'd recommend like this. So check it out today. You can find it at tspaz.com. Remember, we've got everything categorized on tspaz now, too, so you can find all of the products that I've recommended over the years. And remember, if it's on tspaz, I own it and or have personally used it. If I wouldn't spend my money on it or trust my life with it, I would not recommend it to you. All right, next up, let's talk about the song of the day. The song of the day today is uh, by the Cranberries. And, of course... The lead singer of the Cranberries recently just passed away. Um, we don't really know um, exactly what happened yet. There's a rumor that it was drugs, and it certainly could be. Um, and the police say that the results of the forensics won't be released until at least April. That's a little odd to me, and um, it may just be out of some respect for this this artist who was pretty amazing, amazing woman. If you've never heard of her, her name is Dolores O'Royden, and uh, she's Iris, as that might sound, and just a fantastic, almost angelic voice, honestly. One of the, like you, When you hear her sing, you hear Ireland, you hear Irish, and it's in a, in a very beautiful way. This song actually sounds very beautiful, but it's about a very, very ugly topic, and that is children in war. It's called War Child. Um, 
the video that John provided to me was made by just a, a random YouTube user, and uh, it, it's heartbreaking what it shows of children in war. Um, when Dolores wrote this song, here, here's what she had to say about it. I was moved by Bosnia, and that morning in my hotel room, I wrote a song in about 10 minutes. Children suffer the most of all, whether it's Bosnia or Bogside. It's sick. They're so vulnerable. And we talked about this when um, I had Ryan on from the Cold War cast last week with the concept that Red Dawn, in many ways, was an anti-war movie. And that one of the reasons that Americans seem to have such a tolerance for war is we haven't been touched by it the way that many nations around the world have. And when I say that, sometimes I hear from people, you have no idea, I lost a son, or I lost a father, or I lost a brother, or I lost brothers, whatever, I lost friends, you know, I was a soldier and I came home and others didn't. Look, I understand that. Um, and it's usually not people that served in combat that, that I hear this from. It's usually family members who never saw combat that I hear this from. There's a difference in losing your son because he chose to serve his country, put on a uniform, and went somewhere else and was lost. It sucks. It's horrible. I feel for you. But there's a difference between that and looking at your five-year-old child's guts blown out because a bomb landed on the roof of your house. There is a big difference in that. And we are so blessed that we there is no living American who's ever seen real full-scale warfare on U.S. soil. It doesn't exist. No one. But we take that blessing for granted. And we are far too willing to be okay with American bombs falling on foreign soil without thinking of the cost. And they can do whatever they want to tell you that it's smart weaponry and we don't target civilians and what have you. In the end, civilians suffer the most in war. And children can't even get their head around why. I've said this before, but I think if you're not anti-war, you have a mental illness. And we've been led to believe that being anti-war is like being a commie or something, like some stupid-ass shit, being a leftist or whatever. Only leftists are anti-war. One of my true heroes, and there's not many that were ever a politician that are true heroes of mine, but one of my true heroes... Was Dwight Eisenhower, who was the commander of Allied forces in World War II, an incredible war general. You read what he had to say about war after leaving military life, becoming our president, and then after his time as president, he was one of the most anti-war people. I'll remind you of one of his sayings right now to make my point. I hate war is only a soldier who has lived it can. Only is one who has seen its brutality, its futility, and its stupidity. Think about that as you listen to the words of this song. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
to kill and kill your lover. Sure.